this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal Or measure them all by box office appeal But for once in your life Be real! Tell me, Mank, have you ever heard the parable of the screenwriter who wrote about another living screenwriter? I love that. Thank you. Welcome one and all to a movie reviewing, reappraising, genre hopping podcast known as Be Real. We're thrilled to be on the Playlist Podcast Network, and I'm Chance Solon Pfeiffer. I'm Noah Ballard. Uh, Chance, you were nervous about that Charles Dance impression, but I really thought you, you got it. I think the hook in is pretty easy, which is just to put all a couple cobras worth of venom into the K in Mank. Absolutely. As that guy who tried a little too hard at the front of the show was implying, we're about to do a podcast about real-life Hollywood screenwriters depicted in movies, spurred, of course, by the release of David Fincher's Mank on Netflix this, this past weekend. We're also going to do Adaptation, Charlie Kaufman's Spike Jones movie from 2002, and the movie Trumbo from 2015. It's a J. Roach movie about Dalton Trumbo starring Brian Cranston. Is it ever? <laughs> you especially, Noah, care about the boundaries of the categories. And as much as I wanted Barton Fink, this is a podcast about movies, about screenwriters who live. And Barton Fink, never heard of him. No. Uh, as McKee would say, you're only as good as your genre. <laughs> no, what's your genre? Mine's thriller. Uh <laughs> God, that is... So what's the order here? We got to do Mank, and then Adaptation, and then that way if I pass out or die before we get to Trumbo, the show will be fine. Is that cool? Incredible. Mank, it's Orson Welles. Of course it is. I think it's time we talk. What is it the writer says? Tell the story you know. Hello, everyone. Make yourself to home, Mr. Mankowitz, or shall I call you Herman? Please, call me Mank. 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 This is Herman Mankowitz, but we're to call him Mank. Mankowitz. Herman Mankowitz. New York playwright and drama critic. Turned humble screenwriter, Mr. Hurst. This is a business where the buyer gets nothing for his money but a memory. What he bought still belongs to the man who sold it. That's the real magic of the movies. Thunder, lightning, blood, fire, religion. Help! Someone save me! All in one film. That's director proof. That's why I always want Mank around. I hear you're hunting dangerous game. God bless William Randolph Hearst. Ready and willing to hunt the great white whale? Just call me Ahab. This is a movie about, with a great many layers that get obscure the further you go. But it's Jack Fincher, David Fincher's deceased father, in the 90s, wrote a screenplay about Herman Mankiewicz, who is the co-author of the Citizen Kane screenplay, along with Orson Welles, of course. Um, but the inspiration for this movie was a, pol- a famously controversial and pretty much scholastically debunked Pauline Kael essay called Raisin Kane, where she sort of ground her axe against auteur theory by saying that Herman Mankiewicz basically fully responsible for the Citizen Kane script. So, which I don't think this movie, it cares about it a little bit, of course, because that's what the movie's about, but it's not really trying to litigate authorship, I wouldn't say. And here's David Fincher, 30 years later, directing his dad's screenplay about Mank. Yeah, so many questions there. One, 
Yeah, I don't think the movie posits one way or the other, like whether or not Wells took a pass at this one. Because there's it's not like a shot for shot remake of Citizen Kane or anything. Um though you do see some major scenes of if you are familiar with Citizen Kane portrayed in this in sort of like a here's what inspired them kind of way. Definitely. Um, and Fincher himself, but, by the way, has said he doesn't care about that. Which of course he doesn't, because Fincher just doesn't care about shit like that. Right. No, he's more interested in like the fictional mythology around it than the whatever happened in real life. Yeah. Um but it's interesting too, like can you imagine like if your father just like had a screenplay that was sitting around that he was like frustrated he couldn't get produced, like I think I would placate my father and just like never help him with such an endeavor. So it's an interesting thing, like being in that headspace and like thinking about legacy and thinking about like what one owes to the past. That's a really good point. Um, This is a much anticipated movie in a year where we don't have a whole hell of a lot of those. So let me just ask you, what were you thinking going in and what was your first reaction, man? So the situation in which I watched this movie was, Lucy and I sat down on the couch on a Saturday afternoon and I watched it riveted like as a a movie buff and like someone who's interested in golden age Hollywood. And Lucy was asleep in 20 minutes because she like couldn't understand what was going on. Yeah. So I do think, you know, that aforementioned person who's looking forward to a new movie by a specific director coming out, like of that pool of people, you kind of need to have a certain Hollywood awareness to kind of get what this movie's doing, at least in the first hour or so, I would say. I think the first hour is pretty cold anyway. This is a movie yes. where the pathos, I think, sneaks up on you. And one of the questions uh, being asked of like every critic who posted an early review was, do I need to have seen Citizen Kane to understand it? I, I'm hard to... Yes. I'm, yeah. <laughs> I, think it's a, I think it's at least 20 to 25% better. I mean, just to get what they're talking about, you need a baseline understanding of either like American movie history at this time or the reference points of Citizen Kane. Like when they make jokes of like, oh, it's just a man who's obsessed with a sled. It's like you're not going to get what that joke means if you haven't seen Citizen Kane and you know what Rosebud is. The dialogue is very dense there's a ton of it like if if you try to talk oh to God. the person next to you about what's going on you do not have You're time miss to it. do so because there's so many jokes because mank is to the people in his circle um in his like writers cohort at MGM and in his and to Hearst and the people in her circle um they like him most as a as a humorist almost um right. But the movie's not funny. I don't know if it's trying to be funny. It's just a lot of dialogue that um, gives the impression of humor. <laughs> That's the thing. This script, I would argue, is not very good. And I think oh, wow. the movie, like, from the first hour of it, just doesn't know how much fun it can have, maybe, with, like, the weird places it can set characters giving these impassioned monologues or these, like, witty back-and-forth overwritten exchanges. But I think the movie, for me, like, when I kind of, I don't know, realized the camp behind it or something was the when uh, Amanda Seyfried and Gary Oldman are walking around, like, the Xanadu zoo area and you've got the giraffes and the monkeys and everything like becomes sort of ridiculous and overly stylized it's almost like the last third of uh adaptation or something just like the tonal shift that happens where okay we're grounded in like real hollywood we're grounded in the mgm universe but now this movie's like gonna start to have fun with just like the visual gags it can pull off um the structure of the movie I think is really interesting, which also definitely makes it harder to follow, but it's also clearly, I think mirroring citizen Kane in the way that it jumps around in time. And the notion of character development is all based on these little skeleton keys that at times you didn't even know you were looking for. Um, Mm. Because the, so I compare this to most biopics about 
so-called great men, and even compare it to Trumbo, the understanding is that the person that you're watching memorialized here was really important, but we must make these intermittent nods to the fact that, like, well, they were a person. Nobody's perfect, right? And Mank is a fuck-up. I mean, uh, he... The whole... A lot of the realizations of the movie is that people, including Hearst, keep him around because he's the monkey who doesn't know he's the monkey. And it's so strange that the the little bits of very sincere character development are you realize that he's a better person than the movie has made him out to be. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the structure is a little too cute, maybe, like for its own good. Um, you know, and I think the, well, we talked about this a little via text when I was watching this, but like the notion that to set a movie set in golden age Hollywood, it like has to be made like a golden Hollywood age movie. Like that convention doesn't make a ton of sense to me in any context, but especially here. Um, but yeah, this one I think is really like attached to this aesthetic. So you can be like, Oh, Citizen Kane, like wink, wink. But again, just another reference point where it almost makes this movie kind of like a closed circuit. Like it doesn't think about anything larger than adding on to the layers of jokes and the layers. But that's the thing. It it begins to feel more maybe like a tribute um, than it does, like a tribute to the source material itself than it does to like its own standalone thing. I think closed circuit's very apt. I want to come back to that idea for sure. What do you think of, can we talk about the performances? Gary Oldman, um, I feel like is really becoming his character from that episode where he's on Friends and he's just like, he just spits a lot and that's like the secret to his success. Um, Because, I mean, you can't really understand when he's having the first interaction with his wife in the bedroom, like, you know he's saying brilliant things, but they're all so garbled that you kind of don't know what he's saying. And that's, I think, the fun that Fincher's having with this, like, overwritten script. is like he can just throw out whole sections and make it more about how this couple can communicate, like, even when this guy is talking gibberish. Sure. Because he's very, very drunk. I mean, it's classic Oldman. And it's really letting him do what he wants to do. But at some point, I questioned, like, is this really the – like, is this Herman? Like, is this Mank? Or is this just, like, the – is this the script and, like, going a little full, I'll drink your milkshake, you know? <laughs> There's just some times in the – how grandly he's presenting the character as a buffoon where it just it just feels very British. It just feels very close to what we saw with Winston Churchill in Darkest Hour. Um, Interesting. Which I think is watchable, but it, that yes, it does make me wonder, like, is this how the most cutting man in Hollywood, fresh from the Algonquin Roundtable a decade earlier, is this yeah. how he would comport himself? This movie wants to position Mankiewicz as like a Jewish F. Scott Fitzgerald kind of thing where he's like wandering in and out of cocktail parties and like always saying the biting thing. And then of course, like what you don't want to see is, you know, the guy that wakes up in the morning. Uh, You want to get to that point in the evening where he's like just hit his, his right level. Um, The, the notion of his right level is interesting because I think one of the smartest reads in this script is actually put in the mouth of Irving Thalberg, curiously enough, who is, you know, the right-hand man and the partner of Louis B. Merritt, MGM, and at one point in a critical scene is chastising Mank to donate to the Republican gubernatorial candidate who's running against Upton Sinclair, the socialist. This is the time in the depression Sinclair is very much in support of the working man the studio uh is not (laughs) they've cut the pay of everyone involved and Thalberg is like um you're the only one who hasn't donated and he's being very direct and I would argue almost very nice and he kind of pinpoints Mank as you you're the only one here the only one on my payroll who thinks that he's above 
being who he is when he is here. And that notion of the right level is like, I, I don't know that this is a guy who we see him really like want to be a screenwriter much. It's his job. It's how he makes money in 60 to 90 day intervals. But it seems like that right level goes back to the Xanadu scene with Marion, where he wants to flirt with his friends and quote Cervantes. Like that's the, that's what he believes himself to be intellectually befitting of. Right. Yeah, the screenwriting is just a means to an end to like get into those dinner parties. Yeah. Which is that reminded me of Barton Fink for sure, which is you have these East Coast intellectuals who just can't turn down the money and the attention and what they view as a quick payday and then pretty soon they're sucked into a morass of a system that um compromises their work and just keeps them there with dough. Right. Yeah, show business is very seductive. And I think in this movie, um, it's almost like too much time is paid to making it seem seductive. And I mean, like the production value is really great. They just slid everything off the lot from uh, Ryan Murphy's Hollywood and they moved it over here. This is a terrible Um, thing that you're saying right now, but sure. I'm just talking about the proverbial Netflix lot where they make motion pictures and (laughs) keep their things. Keep the old sets. But yeah, I mean, it's it's really convincing that this was a cool time to be in show business. Like, there's that great scene. Like, I, I'm, I feel like I'm coming off as I'm saying this is, like, overwritten, which is me saying it's not good or something. But I think that it, it has those great moments where it is, like, all those, you know, white Jewish guys sitting in a room, like, spitballing ideas for a movie, pretending that they've thought about it all day when really they're coming up with it in that moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's pretty funny. I think that Tom Burke, who gave one of my favorite performances of last year in Joanna Hogg's The Souvenir, is really interesting as well. It's a uncanny physical impression. There's, like, a scene where they're arguing about credit, and he does that, that Wells shoulder thing where his one shoulder is like down and to the left and the voice is really good. I want to just ask you about the portrayal of Wells. The way the movie is structured, where he is like mostly on the phone and then kind of swoops in for a big scene. Regardless of what David or Jack Fincher thinks about the authorship of Citizen Kane, isn't Wells kind of inherently like made to look a little foolish just by the way he participates in this story? Well, it's definitely a rewriting of the mythology around Orson Welles as, like, Hollywood wonderkind. Sure. Um, There's an interesting turn when they're, like, having this witty back-and-forth battle that gets sort of aggressive, and then he throws a bunch of booze across the room. um, And Manx says to Welles, like, you know what we should do is have, like, a moment of violence just like that in the script rewrites. Mm-hmm. So that almost sort of not only winks to the idea that, of course, Orson Welles is part of the, you know, gestation of this script. But it's also – and then Orson Welles, of course, like, smiles because he likes that idea and then, like, leaves. Like, he gets the game. Like, it's yeah. – and figuring it out that it j- is just a game, this, like, show business thing that they're trying to do, that they're just po- – like, they're just – posturing is larger than life only for the i guess the raw inspiration or something (laughs) let me ask you is the thing that maybe drags this movie down at just a tiny bit um the lily collins british typist subplot like how important is it that like she thinks her husband's dead that he's not I just think isn't she I mean I get the read on it and maybe that's like a late character addition to like I don't know put a woman in any one of these scenes uh say well, for a Seafried. You gotta keep Mank talking about what he's working on. And too. that's the thing, you can't have Mank just like laying in bed muttering to himself smoking cigarettes. Like <laughs> you know. And I mean I, I wonder if there is that fear after seeing Trumbo. Yes. Of like not <laughs> wanting to make that movie. It's like either we need a bathtub or we need Lily Collins, but we can't have neither. <laughs> I'll take Lily Collins if those are my options. Um, I think that w- you singling that out is 
I think just symptomatic of what strange Fincher this is for me. In a weird way, I know that I've accused the movie of being dark and cold, and I agree with you that it's a closed circuit in terms of its relevance, but I also feel like he's being a little bit of a softy in this movie, and I don't know if it's because his dad wrote the screenplay, but it's not... I mean, if you think about what he typically likes to do, whether with uh, Robert Graysmith in Zodiac or the version of Zuckerberg we see in Social Network or Jonathan Groff's character in Mindhunter or Ed Norton in Fight Club. Like, you take this guy who's got this kind of starchy collar and he's like, I'm here to do a thing and I'm interested in in seeing where it leads me and where it will lead you is to the pit of hell, sir. And this, he kind of beats sincerity into Mank by showing these this flashback journey through the 30s of how politically cynical and damaging like everyone else is when it comes to taking care of people in the depression and fighting off Nazism and how little everybody else gives a shit. And you kind of slowly realize that, that he does. But I think it's the ways in which we see that he does feel very sincere. And I've never known Fincher outside of like Benjamin Button to trust sincerity. So I just wonder if I'm missing something about that. No, that's really interesting. And maybe maybe that is what I liked about it ultimately was that it didn't do something bizarre um, okay. and violent or ugly or something. I mean, I think the the barf scene and then the Charles Dance monologue is incredible as a climax to a talky movie like this and it just <laughs> becomes what it was the climax is funny yeah i mean that's it becomes what it wants to be i was a little overcome by the end about how inconsequential this all seemed like there is certainly a lot of greatness in the ether but if the point is that you're making a movie about the authorship of a famous movie from 80 years ago, but also hold on. That's not the point because Fincher doesn't actually care. Is it just the pot, like the final black smoke puffs of a mythology machine? Like what's the takeaway from this? But it is really interesting to give yourself context for the fact that like when you see these big companies that are sort of untethered to regulation, of course they're going to start making media and doing the thing that they've got people hooked on to convince their political whatever uh, to suit that of the theaters uh, and of the studios, you know, whether it's their fake narrative that like, oh, the jobs are going to disappear because we're moving to Florida, which is total bullshit, or literally like inventing fake news, which was super fascinating to think about because uh, this was, like you said, 80 years ago. Um like, what's the, you know, where are we now? It's a dense movie. I didn't even realize till the second time. So when, in the Thalberg scene I already mentioned, where Mank says, um, you you can make people believe that King Kong is 30 feet tall and that Mary Pickford is a virgin at 40. Like, you're not even trying. He He's the one who gives him the terrible idea because he, wanted, know. To, he wanted to have a quip. Um Right, and and he that's... says later that, like, I don't think about the weight of my quips. Yeah, and that's kind of, like, the reckoning. If if he is, as your standard Fincher protagonist, it's that he is disrobed of his comforts of persona. It's like, if you ever want to do anything good, you've got to stop fucking joking around in as cynical a way as these other people whose cynicism allows the Holocaust and the Great Depression to persist. Should we tell people how we rate movies and then rate Mank? Please. On Be Real, we rate movies in two categories. A good or bad for technical quality, and a good or bad for watchability. So what are the four possible ratings? I don't care! Good, good movies are both well-made and highly entertaining. The Fugitive, Parasite, Rear Window, or The Hunt for Red October. Once more, we play our dangerous game. Good bad movies are often impressive technically, but also tough sits. Historical melodramas like The Mission, horror movies too scary or gross to rewatch, or self-serious musicals like Yentl. Papa, can you hear me? 
Conversely, bad good movies are highly flawed but still gratifying. Nonsensical hangouts like Hot Tub Time Machine or ludicrously fun action fare like Twister or Stargate. Give my regards to King Tut, asshole. Bad, bad movies are neither well-made nor entertaining. Examples we've covered, unfortunately, include Garden State, Fifty Shades of Grey, and Attack of the Clones. I'm deeply sorry, Master. Got all that? Time for a rating. As a Fincher devotee, I think, I'm sure there's more in here that I'm not getting, and I am in his incredibly um, procedural way tempted to watch this over and over because I feel like I've got to get it which is my you know fucking Sisyphusian Zodiac obsession (laughs) so I trust that there's more in here um it's frustrating though for instance like Amanda Seyfried's gotten gotten a lot of praise like early praise I think she's good in this movie but there is a level of frustration that sinks in where a lot of the emotionalism from her Marion Davies portrayal has to come from you having, again, knowing what character in Citizen Kane she inspires in Kane's second wife. Exactly. Like that's that's and, where the and tragedy comes from. why she would be from. potentially offended by that representation. It doesn't have anything to do, it has something to do with the movie you're watching, but it also doesn't. Um, right. So, and I don't think it's enough to have the scene where he's in bed with Lily Collins and and she reads it and she's like, is he, is he going to know that it's him? Cause you've written this American guy who is all whatever. And it's like, let's either tell us the plot of citizen Kane or, or show us some footage from it or something like that awful Spartacus thing from uh Trumbo <laughs> that we'll talk about later. Yeah, like course. give us, give us a little bit of the movie. Yeah. Digital out Kirk Douglas, for God's sake, and give us a little bit of the movie. So all of this is to say, I I feel like this one we're still really figuring out as we speak. Um, But I think it's a a good bad. I could not and will not recommend this to anyone in my life who's anything less than like a a self-described cinephile. Because I think it's, it's... Cold and hard and tough to get through and long. Um, Oh, it's definitely long. Good, bad for me. I'm going to agree with you. Like, I think there is something good here. And I think with a, an Aaron Sorkin script version of this, that you have like the social network of fake news written by entertainment companies that control, you know, how we think about all kinds of media today with really interesting characters who incidentally added to this weird fiasco that became American history. But I don't think that's this movie. I think this movie is a series of really fun, if overwritten monologues that Gary Oldman gets to give uh, in really well production valued sets. Uh, And if you really like what maybe chance and i definitely i like uh about the mythology of hollywood yeah it's it's the same it's a better tingling than you'd get from a lot of other bad like we're in hollywood cue the big band jazz you know which of course this movie has like the trent reznor uh nine inch nails big band orchestra i don't know if it's great but it is incredible that it's there it's incredible that it's there and there are some good moments uh, like when he gets out of the car, when Amanda Seyfried's like pulling out of one studio to head to the other where it's like, I don't, it's like like a, a, a dissonant instrument in there with otherwise like a very boisterous band. It's really cool. It's just very funny to imagine Trent and Atticus in a room being like, yeah, Glenn Miller, don't sit under the apple tree, but super creepy. <laughs> Right, exactly. Um, yeah, I even like wrote down a, a Mank quote, and I just like, couldn't believe how much space it took up in my notes, which is he goes, because he's been drinking, they, they won't let him have whiskey when he's laid up, so he's drinking like bottles of tranquilizer. <laughs> yeah, they're like just giving him enough tranquilizers to fall asleep. And he goes, I'm sick and tired of having my nights end with the abrupt sensation of being struck on the head with a croquet mallet did that not take me 30 minutes to get out just there Uh, yeah that's what i'm saying like there's a better (laughs) line in there 
Like Sorkin does a pass on this script and that line is so much tighter. All right, let's talk about adaptation, shall we? So this is Charlie Kaufman coming off of being John Malkovich a couple years earlier, once again working with Spike <laughs> Jones. footage from being John Malkovich <laughs> yeah. or the making of. I don't think I I hadn't seen being John Malkovich the last time I watched this movie. So like, what the fuck did I think was going on? Um, <laughs> this is another one. These these writerly movies about writers. It really helps to to have the reference points locked in. Well, that's the thing too. So we'll talk about that one as well. Um, but yeah, so it's Charlie Kaufman writing about Charlie Kaufman trying to adapt Susan Orlean's bestseller, The Orchid Thief. Uh, so you see this screenwriter going through the motions of doing the research, coming up empty, and then sort of making the pivot into, oh, this can be like sort of my story or something else entirely and sort of adapt adaptation uh, and become something else. Which, of course, then the movie... So these are real people we're talking about. The movie then becomes this whole separate thing that has nothing to do with the actual book. Not uh, remotely. The Orchid Thief by the actual Susan Orlean. But Meryl Streep continues to be Meryl, uh, Susan Orlean in the movie. Nick Cage plays Charlie and the fictional Donald Kaufman. Um, Isn't it mind-blowing that Donald Kaufman gets a writing credit on this movie? So funny. She hates me. She's disappointed. I could see it in her eyes when we met. I've got to stop sweating. Oh, she looked at my hairline. She thinks I'm bald. She's thinking I would never in a million years sleep with this guy. We think you're great. Oh, thanks. Wow, that's that's nice to hear. To begin, coffee would help me think. Coffee and a muffin. I'm going up to Santa Barbara this Saturday, and I, I was wondering... Oh, I'm sorry. So I'll just be right back with your pie then. Drum roll, please. I'm going to be a screenwriter like you. I'm putting in a chase sequence. So the killer flees on horseback, cops after them on a motorcycle. And it's like a battle between motors and horses, like technology versus horse. Susan, we would really like to option this. You want to make it into a movie? I want to know what it feels like to care about something passionately. Don LaRoche is a tall guy, sharply handsome. The book has no story. There's no story. Make one up. Okay, we open with LaRoche. No, we open at the beginning of time. Okay, we open with LaRoche. Crazy white man. We open on Charlie Kaufman. Fat, bald, ugly, paces. I've written myself into my screenplay. That's kind of weird, huh? I've always known this was a great Nick Cage performance. I very much enjoy talking about and watching Nick Cage movies for the most part, no matter how good or bad they are. Um, but he's perfect for this because whenever I watch Nick Cage, he always feels like a, like a two-faced kind of experience. He's always the guy losing his mind because he believes he looks like a German expressionist painting. And then there's, you know, this is a fallacy of my perception, of course, but then there's the feeling that he's doing it for me, which is just high comedy of whatever he's doing whenever he freaks out in one of his movies. He's always pain and hilarity bifurcated. And in this movie, that's literalized in Charlie and Donald. It's so funny to watch... Nick Cage make fun of the woundedness that he seems to give off in so many of his performances. Yes, it's when that kind of Cagean craziness worked because it was self-referential. Um, Do we need to discuss the the photo of him walking with Kyle L where you said he looks like he shopped at the Elton John Target collection? <laughs> uh, he did look like that. He had like these glasses and a cane and like Good a line. purple coat. Somebody He's pointed great. out every possible article of clothing but a mask. <laughs> <laughs> of course. I didn't even think about that because I just assume he's living on a different planet. Sure. <laughs> yeah, but pocket square and kerchief, but no mask. Um, even Donald's very existence in the movie reveals this kind of Kaufman-esque self-flagellation that's so prevalent in this movie 
where Donald is writing a, th- a thriller about a murderer with split oh, the personalities. Three. <laughs> the three, thank you. And Charlie's like, that stupid split personalities are so overdone in a movie where clearly Charlie Calvin has right. split his psyche in half to represent two. There's just nothing... There's no <laughs> criticism at this time in Kaufman that you can level at him that he hasn't leveled at himself 30 seconds ago. Right. <laughs> yes, it's so it's it's so self-referential both in you know the Hollywood landscape that it exists in, but yes, also in the narrative structure. You know, like he's talking about the whole time of like he doesn't want it to be a movie about drugs. He doesn't want it there to be any car chases. And ultimately, the climax of this movie is like it turns to drugs and <laughs> there's a big car chase. There is some magic in this movie in the sense of if you read the reactions that people like Susan Rowling and Robert McKee had to the movie, at first, like both of them are like what the fuck are you doing? And Susan Orlean <laughs> was just like, no, of course you do not have my approval on that. And then she, they, she said that they like didn't push her and then she slept on it and kind of realized it's in keeping with the theme of my book and, you know, what the hell does it matter? And it's just like somebody searching for meaning by, you know, wading into the craziness of this thing of their own invention. And... That's kind of like McKee's thing is similar. Like he, Robert McKee is an interesting and controversial character too. Where like he basically <laughs> demanded they put in the scene where Charlie Kaufman goes to the bar with Brian Cox because McKee didn't want his character to seem irredeemable and didn't want him to just like take this intellectual bashing right. for hackneyed screen stuff. So it's so crazy that he makes that demand, which seems very cynical and self-aggrandizing, but it works. Because Charlie, the real Charlie Kaufman, still needed the man's help, so it still lines up somehow. Right. Yeah, they need that character's help just to further the story, and that's yeah. a. I mean, frankly, I think the one of the features of this movie is the supporting cast, okay. um, specifically like Brian Cox, and then of course Meryl Streep uh, and Chris Cooper, who are all really, really good. That and even. Like Maggie Gyllenhaal has like a couple scenes in this. And Tilda Swinton does a really good job as like the very unassuming film executive who just terrifies Charlie Kaufman for whatever reason. Yeah. We should say, I don't know if my spiel there made sense. The reason that Susan Orlean would have been like, what the fuck, man, is that she's a New Yorker journalist who wrote this story about John LaRoche who was trying to poach this orchid from the Everglades and then Kaufman's film extrapolates that to say that they were in love and doing drugs made from the orchids and then tried to kill him when he went down to <laughs> to follow her and that she was like spying on him. So just all this stuff that has absolutely nothing to do with real life Susan Orlean. Though I have to push back on that a little bit because if you've been following Susan Orlean on Twitter the past 18 months or so like the character has been revealed yeah she'll have these like drunken binges well she's like posted like gross pictures of like things growing on her feet oh she had like a like a like ghost orchids it kind of looked like you know a little swampy (laughs) you you really like this movie i believe what else do you like about it this movie fucking blew my mind when i saw it when i was like 16 years old and like everything about my life was movies and it was uh-huh. like what it's like a movie about making a movie what? but it's not really a movie what <laughs> like that's i'm going to do a I podcast was. about that one day <laughs> uh in 24 years i'm going to do a but no, uh 14 years fuck Four, wow. 16 years. Let me try that again. The man just made himself 40. In 16 years. I'm going to do a podcast about that. Um, but I didn't like it that much less, I got to say, when I watched it this weekend. Because I think it really, like, on a structural level, which is stuff that, like, interests you and me, I guess I oh, yeah. think. Um, it is just, like, designed for a podcast like this where you can pick apart, like, the different pieces of it. Uh, and give it a little space. Uh, and I also, also think it's like an interesting commentary on like, if I poked at a little bit this time with the idea of like what it says about the industry, quote unquote, don't say that Noah. Um, (laughs) 
don't call it the industry. But the idea that Charlie Kaufman is living in this house that's way too big for his needs because he's just like really cashed in on the script sale and the setup costs for being John Malkovich. And so, of course, he like says yes to, and none of these scenes are in the movie, but like the situation is that he's like said yes out of the goodness of his heart to his like failing, also 40 something brother. Mm-hmm. And so there's like this really interesting idea of this what do you suddenly do with all this money and pressure and i think the movie talks about that without actually like having a scene i mean there's this goofy ron livingston agent which made me feel like very self-conscious yeah uh, not a flattering portrayal of your profession not a, a flattering portrayal of a, a a literary agent um god um but it's there's no the, the movie doesn't stretch for one of those scenes where they have like a heart to heart and it turns out the agent's like a super good guy or something and the no. note that he gave him like made all the difference it's really like oh this guy's a scumbag that i like need to deal with in order to continue my way of life um the pressure of what's next too i think is interesting when you think about like why did charlie kaufman even agree to adapt the orchid thief because the story of being john malkovich is that Cusack had so much heat that he pulled it off of the studio's unmakeable pile. Like that was the story he told on Marin this year was just like, I went to the studio and was like, what scripts do you have lying around that like cannot be made? And they showed him being John Malkovich. So the fact, and of course it became a sneaky beloved hit. And but, so then Charlie Kaufman, then he's just like, well, how, d- how does he get roped into just like adapting a book that I don't, think has that much to do with his sensibility at all no and it's like this idea too where it has to be this like big more perfect thing because he had heat on him as you say uh from this splashy you know thing going into production i really like the moments where Catherine keener and john cusack as themselves like on the set of being john malkovich show up to just show that he's like not in the club yeah he may he may like be on set, but he's not. He's he's neither Dalton Trumbo or Mankiewicz like making people laugh and like doing the whole thing. And Donald really isn't that way either, even though he's a little bit more outward. Um, My theory of, of Kaufman and I, you still haven't seen. It, I'm thinking of anything because you're you think you'll be upset by it. Is that right? Can I say that? I've really like broken up. I think I've or I've, I've been forced to break up with Charlie Kaufman. Um, for many years, like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind was absolutely like my favorite movie. It's still definitely up there. Yeah. Um, but then he like got very sad and cynical, Charlie Kaufman, and forgot thine audience, I think, a little <laughs> bit. Like I was so baffled by Synecdoche, New York, um, that I don't think I have the whatever in my heart to watch. I'm thinking of ending things. I would argue that these are especially i'm thinking of ending things with i won't spoil it but they're almost like post intellectual movies from someone who would have been considered one of hollywood's great intellectuals this century like the thoughts instead of playing tennis with his own thoughts the thoughts are now so refuted and twisted by its own work that they really are just movies about deep, deep confusion and hurt. Um, He's this novel out to ant worlds. I don't know. Apparently a whole chapter of which is dedicated to how shitty AO Scott is. Oh really? But apparently it's just a joke and they're like cool about it. There was some Twitter back and forth. Interesting. Um, 32 across. But at this time, at this time, it's a great movie to break down because it is engaging with like the structuralism around screenplays and these notions of selling out versus not. And there, there are some Donald lines that I have to say really reminded me of you and I when we're floundering uh, on this show. When he's talking about his um, the new thing he's adding to his script where he's like, so there's a big action set piece and like there's a there's horses and like a car chase and it's like a battle between horses and motors, you know, like, like technology versus horse. <laughs> <laughs> 
love the technology versus horse. It's so great. But oh, yeah, he's just just teasing a light teasing of like the very act of looking for that accepted English major analysis right above a screenplay. Absolutely. Yeah. I also think it's, there's that tension too, between people like us, the people who appreciate mank type movies and the people, you know, like there's that great line in, uh, where they're talking about how illogical it would be in the Donald screenplay, the three that the police detective would also be the person who's, uh, been abducted like how would they be in different places and one of them tied up and one of them not tied up at the same time and so charlie says how could you have somebody held prisoner in a basement and working at a police station at the same time and donald of course responds trick photography <laughs> which to me to me like encapsulates like sometimes when i'm like getting amped up for this show and like throwing a, a theory at it lucy just to see if she picks up on it or something yeah. and i'll ask like, a rhetorical question like that like it's it's trick photography well that's i think that's a funny bit that might bring us back to something overarching about today's genre too which is what is the takeaway when we're watching movies that are so isolating around this one job because we love to think about scripts. We love to think about writing. And sometimes I think we fall flat in analyzing visuals and we might say something like, I don't know, trick photography. <laughs> oh yeah. No, I, I'm definitely always jumping to the trick photography. I just sure. sort of say the word digital when I know something's been done with a computer. Exactly. No, I, and I think you have been right about that most of the time. Um, yeah, this this whole episode, especially with these first two, is such, I think is kind of a melancholy outing. It sort of admits that no matter how hard you try, Mank or Charlie or Trumbo, they will just kind of end up writing their own story because they, exactly. they can't, they can't their help it. Their most compelling story is their own story. They can't help it. Um, That's really interesting. But then the sad part is like, especially with regard to Mank, is like, but they may not even intend it that way. It probably won't be remembered that way. Only the deepest of historians and the geekiest of podcasters will even bother to try to parse the facts of that. It's just a sort of liberating but sad and not about like who the writer, who the writer is. But it also gives the writer a chance to like tell their own story. And by that, I, I don't just mean their biography, but also their version of the thing. Like, I think adaptation gives permission for a movie like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Because you can do whatever you want. And that's the real takeaway for me is the the biggest joke about any movie about the industry or really anything uh, is that it's just a movie. Right. <laughs> like it just needs to have a compelling third act. Like it doesn't, it doesn't have to be real. Uh, and I guess there's a more cynical and sinister way to look at that in terms of the way we often look to cinema to tell us our respective histories and then get frustrated when it isn't representative of the truth. Right. Um I don't know, but I think in this one, it almost shows you the magic. It shows you the trick of photography literally with the two Nick Cages. Right. Um, oh, man, Jesus. See, there it is again. How do they do it? How do they have two of him in a movie? Trick photography. God. Yeah, there's a, there's incredible. It's incredible how many of those little parallels there are. But I think this movie is fine with saying, "Hey, I'm just a I'm just a movie." Like I took an unadaptable book by a guy with an unshootable debut feature, and here's a movie about that. And I got no idea what to do with the third act, so here we go. Yeah, and then he's just gonna go to that Hollywood well to make it with about drugs and a car chase and. Right. You know, learning something in the end. And I'm going to do all the things that McKee just said not to do. I'm going to do Deus Ex Magna. I'm going to keep the voiceover. But um, in that way, I think it's also a very watchable movie. Because like, unlike needing to see Citizen Kane, if you've seen a movie, you can understand <laughs> like how movies work. So I think it is fun to not only see this particular movie unfold, but be asked to question what your expectations are for a movie like this that zooms out just that like half half step adaptation is a good good unequivocally it's a 
I yeah, I agree. I think adaptation's a good good. It's less it's definitely less boring than I thought it was gonna be, like on rewatch. Um I think it really moves and when it starts to drag, it knows that it's time to do something. Like the New York trip is like, where are we going from here? And then McKee and then the drug deal stuff. And it yeah, it just flies from there. Um we barely talked about Spike Jones, but a huge part of that is up to is up to him. I mean, this is not Kaufman directing himself. This is uh, somebody steeped in music videos and MTV culture and yes. really ambitious indie entertainment of the day. And he's going to make it move. And Charlie, I think, knows that the script has to move if he's going to work with Spike Jones. Yes. No, there is that that pop sensibility to it that is definitely the um, team behind the camera. And also Lance Accord, who's done a bunch of Sofia Coppola's movies, too. I love our country, and it's a good government, but anything could be better. You talk like a radical, but you live like a rich guy. It's a perfect combination. The radical may fight the purity of Jesus, but the rich guy wins with the cunning of Satan. Your next deal is going to make you the highest paid writer in Hollywood. Where do I sign? Are you not, or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? Many questions can be answered yes or no only by a moron or a slave. No studio will ever employ a member of the Communist Party. Decent Americans feel that Hollywood is just a haven for overpaid traitors. Buddy, I got nothing to say to you. We do what everyone says we can't. We write. Are you out of your mind? Congress has no right to investigate what we... Let's get ready to Trumbo. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you really liked that one. I love a Michael Buffer joke. The podcasters are ready. Let's get ready to Trumbo! Oh, no. oh my god okay um trump is a movie from 2015 directed by jay roach who's made such uh prestigious dramas as austin powers um and also <laughs> <laughs> he's made some real movies come on <laughs> yeah bombshell um a bunch of hbo he made like game change right <laughs> game change yeah 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 meet the parents oh yeah that's right you like meet the parents um i do so yeah this is a movie best known for getting brian cranston an oscar nomination for best actor um dinner for schmucks (laughs) are you inviting me so (laughs) in 1947 dalton trumbo was hollywood's top screenwriter as established by that scene where uh, (laughs) Louis B. Mayer's like, you're about to be the highest paid screenwriter in Hollywood, thus the world. (laughs) But one thing. Until he and other artists were jailed and blacklisted for their political beliefs. He's a commie. Right. This is the the same scene. There's a comma but from Louis B. And he's like, but don't ever talk about communism again. So that's basically the movie right there. Right. Yeah. On the heels of making these very successful fake newsreels, uh, not 10 years earlier, Louis B. Mayer's back to tell those commies to go straight to hell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Beats Upton Sinclair and then decides to railroad some people. Who do you think is a better Louis B. Mayer? Yeah. Uh, the guy who tries to salvage the theme park rights in <laughs> Jurassic Park Lost Worlds? Arliss Howard, yeah. Or... Or this guy. San Diego Zoo. San Diego Chargers. Um, that's a little lost <laughs> world for the, <laughs> that was for the JP2 heads. What a weird thing. <laughs> Richard Portnow. Um, the Arliss Howard and Mank is way better. Yeah, you're right. You said, and Jay Roach has made a bunch of HBO movies, this is such an HBO movie. and Oh, yeah. It's it an episode of like the... American uh, injustices right. that HBO likes to put out every six months or so. Exactly. It's Joe Paterno or 
the bad education principal from Long Island. It's just adult contemporary Sunday night drama. You got a you got a couple prestige actors in Cranston and Diane Lane and Helen Mirren, and you have a story that's mostly about conveying information, often embarrassingly so. It's just so placed in history that like even – I don't know how quickly it became like the normal used lexicon, but it took an amount of time before people started referring to like the war against Germany and the Axis as World War II because like at the time it didn't seem like a – it was just the war that was happening. Yeah. It's only the history books that have given us that term. But this movie kind of trades in that kind of textbook American history – where you have, I don't know, you don't feel as placed like the way Mank is, where it's like, I don't give a shit about <laughs> what you know about this time. Yeah. Uh, I'm only going to give you references to these weird anecdotal characters that you only know from cinema history. I'd rather have to do the work than be patronized. That's just my choice here. Um, and I think... I think it's a balance. I think yes. these are the two spectrums of it. That's a good point. That's a good point. Um this movie, I just don't think, can stand up to the intelligence and productivity of Dalton Trumbo. Yeah, it's interesting that this movie like doesn't have its own narrative of some other. You, you not only need the one screenwriter, you need like some other weird force to like pull that screenwriter into something else to make it a movie about writing a movie. Like this one never really grounds itself in a specific artistic endeavor. It really shows screenwriting. And I mean, it definitely was at this time, but it was just like a vocation. Yeah. Like he's just churning out screenplays as quick as he can uh, to pay the bills to sort of synthesize the kind of salary that he would have gotten at the, I guess at the low end uh, being a non blacklisted, non communist person. Um, but this one doesn't have the like sort of pushback of, oh, I have to adapt someone else's work and what's the responsibility there? Or it doesn't have the, I'm turning in a script for the Orson Welles of the age. Uh, it doesn't have like the handing off of the like, I don't know, in that Mank is like, you know, his father handing to Fincher, Fincher Sr. hands to Fincher Jr. this mantle of a story. Well, even the production of Trumbo, like, doesn't really have that kind of relay race history or property development thing to make it kind of like a, a thing, like a question about what a movie is by looking at a movie creator. Right. The funny thing is it has, the, it actually has that scene. You're accusing it of missing like four different times. It's just never about the writing or the movie. Like he's talking with, uh, Otto Preminger about Exodus. He's talking with Kirk Douglas about Spartacus. He's talking with, um, who's the guy that Alan Tudyk plays who gets the credit on Roman holiday. Who's that, um, writer. Ian McClellan Hunter. He has a scene where he gives him the Roman holiday script, but in none of those scenes do they talk about the movie or like what it might mean for Dalton Trumbo. So it feels more like just trivia, which is, it's like I watch right. it and I'm like, oh, it's, it's cool that he wrote The Brave One and I guess weird and sad that he didn't get the credit, but like, what, is, what does it mean? <laughs> Weird and sad. Yeah, it's it's kind of hard to see the weight of the injustice for some reason. Like, yeah. I almost forgot by the time this movie was over that it has like an act of it is in jail. Because um, it kind of dismisses that immediately when he gets back to the outside. He's just like, okay, I'm turning up the speed to 11. The injustice and the weight of the injustice, that's a smart point. And for one thing, I think it's actually just really, really, really hard to convey. Like if you've listened to any of the You Must Remember This podcast about the blacklist, it's so complex how invested and or just performative people like Louis B. Merritt, Hedda Hopper, and John Wayne, and all these people... How much were they in or out? What did it mean? From 47 to 60, which is the span of this movie, you have both the rise and the fall of McCarthyism. Like, I, the movie 
is really up against it with how to portray this. But then I also think like tries to cheat its way out of it by having this, I hope this isn't too controversial to say, very like Joe Biden-y speech at the end where it's like, what we've been through sure wasn't great, but truly like no one was to blame. We were all, there were only victims is what Trumbo says. It's like, there were only victims. Like there were perpetrators. Well, the movie is also overly simple, too, in that John Wayne and Helen Mirren are, like, clearly the antagonists here. The actress Helen it, Mirren did this? She did it. Hedda uh, Hopper. No, Helen Mirren as Hedda Hopper, right. yeah. Hedda Hopper and John Wayne, like, leading this insidious charge, like, against parenthetic. It just won't come out and say Jews, either, which really upsets me. Because, like, that's one of the major things about the blacklist. It's, it's mostly Jewish writers and Jewish people who change their names as part of, like, entering the the working American Hollywood thing. And then we're, because of that lineage, we're then accused of having communist ties. She does use a slur in that scene with Louis B. Mayer, but it... Oh, she uses the K word. In, indeed. But, like, also, that's a terrible scene. But not in a too, like, someone who's not her equal, though. Right. Like, Louis B. Mayer's, a f- like, a force. Yeah. That scene's awful, because they're trying to connote in one exchange that Louis B. Mayer is a sexual predator and she's an anti-Semite. And the movie just feels like it has to do so much historical work that like it cannot and will not tangle with by just being like, and here's this line to remind you of this, and here's this line to remind you of this. Any movie that has to have a scene of someone testifying before a Senate committee is like, it's no good. Godfather Part 2? Perfect example. (laughs) No, I just think in this day and age, like that convention is just, it's so much easier to tell the story without a scene like that, that would like be be more impactful without being less history channel. And it's run down by these prestige movie cliches about great men. The Diane Lane plays Cleo Trumbo, Dalton's wife. And her part is embarrassing, I think. It's very small. It's very small. She's like, my husband. Well, that's like the funny commentary if you want to put Mank and Trumbo up to like up to the light a little bit of 2020. Mank has the moment where his wife Sarah is just like, listen, like I'm in this for my own reasons. And the only thing I ask is you stop calling me fucking poor Sarah. Yeah. You know, give me some dignity. And Diane Lane, like, never really gets her moment of dignity. If anything, I think the movie is sort of outrageous in giving her such a small part and then having the audacity to have, like, an ending title card where it's like, uh, Dalton Trumbo died in the 70s and then Cleo was alive for 20 more years unmarried because she's loyal because she loved him. Right. It's like, who... Who cares? Like, who cares if she got didn't get remarried? Or if she did? It's not great. And then to make Michael Stuhlbarg look nothing like Edward G. Not Robinson for the first five-sixths of this movie, and then to have one maudlin acceptance speech at the end where now he suddenly looks exactly like Edward G. Robinson was, was too much. Yeah, there's just some... The... At best, the like Hollywood side roads in this movie are goofy. It's it was yeah. so weird and unoriginal. Like when it just became a Coen Brothers movie for a second. When he goes to the the King Brothers office and there's John Goodman and Stephen Root, um, Coen Brothers staples, just hanging out, being quirky, being cynical, acting big. Um, but also, Big guys. John Goodman, correct me if I'm wrong, hadn't he run a nobody gives a shit B-movie studio in Argo? Yes. Three years before this. What incredibly well, this movie unoriginal is basically, casting. Yes, there's that. And there's the fact that this movie is essentially just good night and good luck. Like, almost act by act. Oh, okay. I mean... Up until the ending where it's an acceptance speech after he's been, like, pushed out of an award. I hadn't put that together. That's a good point. Yeah. 
same fucking stock footage of Joseph R. McCarthy. Mm-hmm. The junior senator from Wisconsin. <laughs> Trumbo is not a good film. I don't enjoy the movie. It's not Trumbo. a bad movie. I know, but okay, so make your point that you made at the very beginning. The fact that it's competent makes it worse, I think. Yeah, I think the fact that it it's so like by the numbers that it and especially in the context of these other two that are so not by the numbers and sort of revolutionary in their own like realization of what a movie like this needs to be like to be interesting. Well, and we haven't uh, even talked about it, but also the fact that it has a performance in the middle of it from Brian Cranston that's classic Oscar bait that's incredibly, incredibly committed and studied but is not that good just, again, makes it like mediocre. Like, there's few things I would rather watch than a mediocre, unsuccessful attempt at Oscar bait. Yeah. Give me some. Unlike the organic performance of Jonathan Price and the wife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When are we doing Hillbilly Elegy on here? Speaking of subtle Oscar performance. I would love to do like the times that Glenn Close sold out or something. <laughs> Did that do like the wife? <laughs> 102 Dalmatians. 102 Dalmatians and uh, Hillbilly Elegy. That, would, that might be the end of us. Every time Glenn Close needed to remodel her estate. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I'm sorry. Trumbo's a bad, bad for me. I See, I think it's a good bad. Oh, like, I don't think there's God's anything... Sake wrong with it i think technically it is proficient uh you're making such a a vomi face yeah i'm yakking like mank after a night of but i don't think i'd watch it again like if i'm struggling with my own screenplay like i think the litmus test is is this movie the mckee that charlie kaufman needs of a, a potentially stuck screenwriter trying to write his way out of whatever bad thing he's in. And I think for the other two, potentially, but for this one, this is just like a straight biopic of someone who was who, mostly in the yeah, bathtub. Really, he was mostly in the, He's not even in the tub that much. There's only really like two tubs. You wanted more tub? I mean, based on all the promotional materials, I thought it was going to be well more tub. This has been Movies About Screenwriters Who Lived. The year is 2020. Right. Chance and Noah are <laughs> wrapping up their podcast and desperately searching for something to close out with. <laughs> their last words were, of course, Trumbo. <laughs> Nobody knows what that's a reference to. Okay. Um, thanks, as always, to the Playlist Podcast Network and to you, buddy, we're going to be back My pleasure. later in December talking about the breakthrough directors of 2020. Who were they? I thought we were doing best of TV. Joe Mankiewicz? You're wrong about that. So we'll see everyone <laughs> next time. <laughs>